0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles this morning and turning to the Bibles most memorized, the Bibles most quoted, the Bibles most frequently translated and widely published verse. So do I need to announce the reference for you? John 3, verse 16 this morning, John 3 and verse 16, these words... Were spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ in the night near Jerusalem or in Jerusalem to an audience of one, a rabbi by the name of Nicodemus. How thankful all of us can be for these wonderful words, John three and verse sixteen. I'm going to ask you to quote that verse with me this morning, John three, verse sixteen, all together aloud. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful passage to set to memory and to share with one another. Here we find 25 words, and there are 25 words that can change your eternity. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Father, I pray that these words so well-known would be rehearsed by us this morning to the satisfaction of our souls. And Lord, I pray that if someone here today is not sure of salvation, that today would be the day that they'd rest in your promise that you indeed have paid it all. That whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. So use your word this morning, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. John 3:16. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. Martin Luther called John 3:16 the gospel in miniature. Many people have called John 3:16 the gospel in a nutshell. Most who consider this verse carefully will agree it's not only the most famous verse in the Bible, it's likely the most wonderful verse in the in the Bible. I'm going to pause this morning and just zero in on John three sixteen, putting this verse under the microscope, if you will. And I'm going to ask you whether you've known the verse for a long time or it's the first time you've ever heard it. To listen carefully and ask the Spirit of God to move in your soul. Henry Morehouse was called the puny lad from Lancashire, British, born in 1840. He was a bantamweight boxer. At the age of 19, he was already washed up. He was hopeless and despairing. He saw no future for himself. He was living in a boarding house. He was drunk. He stepped out in the hallway of that boarding house with a gun in his hand, trying to build the nerve to end his own life. When he heard from a floor up above, someone reading the story of the prodigal son, His nerve to take his own life was taken away. He put the gun down. He went to bed. and Just a few weeks later, he found himself in the basement of a building, a warehouse actually, in Manchester, England. There, a fireman shared wonderful verses with Henry Morehouse. He shared Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession is made, and with the heart man believes unto righteousness. Henry Morehouse heard those verses, and he placed his trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. But nobody invited him to church. Nobody offered to take him to a Bible class. He just had his Bible, but that was enough. Four years of reading his Bible set his heart on fire, and he began to preach, and other people soon listened to his preaching with great delight. D.L. Moody was visiting in England, and he was introduced to Henry Morehouse, and he rather haphazardly said to Henry, listen, if you ever get to the United States, look me up. I'd love to have you come to Chicago and preach. Moody came back to the United States, and when he arrived back in the United States, he received a letter from Henry Morehouse, and the letter said, hey, I've come to New York, and I would be delighted to come upon your invitation and preach for you in Chicago. Moody never thought he'd ever hear from Henry Morehouse again, so he wrote a rather abrupt letter to Henry, and he said, well, if you ever come west, look me up. A couple of days later, he got another letter from Henry Morehouse saying, hey, I'm in Chicago, can we get together? Moody was leaving town and he had a problem on his hands. He didn't want to be embarrassed having actually said to this man he could come and preach at the great church that Moody was pastoring. So he pulled together his church leaders and he said, I made a haphazard invitation to an evangelist over in England to come and preach for me. I'm heading out of town would you mind terribly if he came and preached for us here Thursday and Friday? I'll be back on Saturday, and I'll, I'll, I'll take him into my hand at that time. And the leadership of his church said, that'd be fine, Pastor. So Moody left town. When he got back, he saw his wife, and he said, well, how'd the people like this Henry Morehouse fellow? And his wife famously said to Moody, they loved him. In fact, he doesn't preach like you at all. <laughs> he speaks about the love of God. I'm sure you're going to like him. And Moody responded to his wife, Well, I'm sure I won't. But then he went to the service and he heard Henry Morehouse preach. He was so moved by the preaching of this little lad from Lancashire that he invited him to continue preaching and for the next seven days, Henry Morehouse preached from John 3.16 every single day. He talked of the love of God. In fact, on the seventh night, Henry Morehouse said, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but this poor stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ask Gabriel how much God has loved for this poor lost world, all that mighty angel could say would be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's been said that Henry Morehouse was the man who moved the heart of those many men who would receive Christ as Savior. He moved the heart of D.L. Moody. Now, we don't have seven nights to explore John 3 and verse 16, but I do want to share with you very quickly this morning five ways that God's love is revealed in this wonderful, wonderful verse. Five ways God's love is revealed to each of us. We start by considering... The origin of love that is here. The text begins with these words For God so loved. What amazing words these are. The Westminster Confession of Faith was hammered out by English and Scottish clergymen in 1646. And when they came to the question, How will we answer who is God? they developed this answer and it became part of the westminster confession and the catechism the god is spirit infinite unchanging eternal in his being his wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth now that's a wonderful definition but you know it's missing something listen again god is spirit infinite unchangeable eternal in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What's it missing? It's missing God's love. No one would deny that this is a fine definition of who God is. But I'm so thankful that when the Spirit of God moved upon John the Apostle to share the message that Jesus shared with Nicodemus that night, that he centered on the love of God. And I'm so very thankful the Word of God declares in 1 John 4 and verse 8 that God is love. And in case we don't believe it, 1 John 4 and verse 16 says it again, God is love. Now folks, we live in the realm of a quandary. John 4 and verse 24 says, God is spirit. The Word of God reminds us in John 1 and verse 18 that no man has seen God at any time. Because God is spirit, we cannot see God. If someone says to you, I saw God, you should not listen to that person. They're a phony. Never believe someone who comes to you saying they've seen God. But John 1 in verse 18 says this, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him unto us. Now the word declared in John 1 and verse 18 is the Greek word exegemo or exegemomai. We get our word exegesis. It means to show forth. It means to draw out. It means to unfold. It means to release. The word declared is a good word. The only begotten. He has declared him. In other words, Jesus came to earth, and he came to earth with this mission to reveal to us the one that we cannot see, to tell us of the one whose voice we can't hear. And you know what he said? God so loved. Jesus came to reveal the love of God. and We are born with an innate knowledge of God. Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity in our heart. As we look up, we see painted in the heavens the great power of God. And as we see the great power of God and reflect on the fact of eternity that's born within us, we all wrestle with an understanding of the justice of God and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to tell us of God's love. And the apostles echo that message when in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, the Word of God says, God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is declared in God's Word. He is the originator of love, the source of love, the origin of love. R.V. Clearwaters was born in 1900. He lived on a farm way out west. He became the founder of Pillsbury Baptist Bible College and Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Minneapolis, a school that I attended. By the time I attended Central Seminary in Minneapolis, Dr. Clearwaters was quite old and he'd become quite well known and his students affectionately called him Doc. Doc Clearwaters pastored the Fourth Baptist Church of Minneapolis for 42 years. But let me tell you a little bit about Doc Clearwaters. When he was 16 years of age, he decided he'd go sow his wild oats and he ran away from home. He became a vagabond. He rode the rails. He did that for five years, wandering from town to town, taking odd jobs along the way. He injured his arm and so because of his desperate situation, he knew he had to go home and get healed. So he went back home and his parents lovingly embraced him and drew him back into the home. As his arm healed, he got active on the farm, and one day he was out on the farm, did not know Christ as Savior. He was working with his brother Weldon. He was operating a horse-drawn wagon filled with lumber. It was very heavy. He stood up, and he snapped the reins to get the horses to pull that heavy wagon, and his brother Weldon fell off the wagon, fell beneath one of the wheels. Weldon was crushed, and the next day Weldon died. R.V. Clearwaters, Richard Clearwaters, slipped into a terrible depression. After weeks of depression, as he was starting to come out, he was invited to revival services. He went to revival services and he heard the blessing of the love of God and the forgiveness of God. He trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Within six weeks, he was enrolled at Moody Bible Institute. During his time at Moody Bible Institute, he memorized one-tenth of the New Testament. He went from Moody Bible Institute to Northern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he got a THB and also got his BD. From there, he enrolled in Kalamazoo College, receiving a BA, on to Chicago University, receiving an MA in ancient languages, into a PhD program that he didn't finish because the Lord involved him in ministry along the way. He was able to eloquently quote from memory pages and pages of classic literature, God allowed his use of his memory to inspire so many wonderful messages. I heard Dr. Clearwater's preach at the age of 85. He stood before a gathering of ministers. He was 85 years of age. He carried into the pulpit his Greek New Testament, no notes. he began to speak, he wanted to help us understand the love of God. So he spoke of a statue that had been found on the Isle of Milo, the Venus de Milo. He talked about that beautiful marble statue, how it had been uncovered, almost nine feet in height. He spoke of the artistry that had chiseled that statue, and of course, Venus, the love god of the Greeks, Aphrodite to the Romans. And then he pointed out something very significant. He pointed out that when the statue was found, the goddess of love had no arms. And he shared with the audience that day that that was ever so appropriate after all, There was no warmth of love in the heart of the goddess Aphrodite. There was no love in the heart of Venus for those who bowed before her. And she had no arms. And at that point, he broke. And I saw an 85-year-old man who saw the love of God bring him from hopelessness to hope and bring him from purposelessness to purpose and influence his mind and his ministry for all those years as he wept And he said, it's ever so appropriate that the Venus de Milo has no arms because God's arms are real and they're warm. For God so loved the world that he embraced the world through the arms of his son. And dear friend, it's true. God's arms are real. Through the miracle of the incarnation, born of a virgin, Jesus came to live without sin to embrace sinners. God commends His love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He spread out His arms for us in the arms of Jesus Christ so wide on the cross that He would die for the sins of the world. The Word of God declares in 1 John 4 and verse 10, here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He gave Himself for us. Love originates with God. Have you accepted God's love for you? Have you responded with gratitude? Have you shared the love of God with someone else? 1 John 4 and verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We've looked at the first four words of these 25 words that can change our eternity, for God so loved. I want to look at two more words. The world. For God so loved the world. And now we're considering the object of God's love. The world. He's not speaking here of the world's system. He's not speaking of the world's suffering. He knows the world's stains. He knows the world's sins. It wouldn't be surprising if we read, for God so hated the world. We stand then in amazement when we read that God so loved the world. The world that rejects Him. The world that mocks Him. The world that ignores Him. God so loved the world. And we need to be reminded of two things here. We need to be reminded first of the object of God's love being universal. God so loved the world, the cosmos. He's not speaking of the physical elements of this world. We know that because 2 Peter chapter 3 says all of these things that we see right now, they're all kept in store, reserved unto fire. They're going to melt. It's all going to be obliterated. He's not speaking of the physical elements of the world. Surely he's not speaking of the world system. God so loved the world. In other words, he's not talking about the culture of the world that he forbids us from loving. 1 John chapter 2 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world and of the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. The world's past. We're not supposed to love the systems, the cultures, the politics. Right there we ought to all say, Amen. It's not talking about the systems of the world. He's talking about souls. God so loved the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 tells this, this about our God. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you know that there are are many who would wrestle over what the concept of the world is in John 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world. I believe he's saying here that God loves each individual person who has ever occupied the world, who is occupying the world, who ever will occupy the world. God loves each soul. God loves each soul no matter where they're born, no matter what their nationality, no matter what language they speak, no no matter what their skin color God loves them no matter what their age, no matter what their educational ability. God loves the world, every individual soul on this planet. God's love for them is universal. God so loves the world. Now, there are theological systems that are woven together. To deny what I believe seems to be readily apparent, there are people who will spend many pages in volumes to try to redefine what the world means. But so often in God's Word, God makes this clear, that we have to say it with great joy. John 1 and verse 29, behold the Lamb of God, can you finish it? That takes away the sin of the world. John 6 and verse 33, for the bread of God is He who cometh down from heaven and gives life unto the, to the world. 1 John 2 and verse, and verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the World. There it is. Over and over again. Why? Because first John 4 and verse 14 says, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That includes you. That includes me. Can we all agree together that God universally loves every person on this planet? And can we then ask, and how do we demonstrate that love to others? Regardless of their race, regardless of their background, regardless of their circumstance. You see, when we look at this and discover the object of God's love is universal, we also recognize that the object of God's love is always undeserving. (laughs) None of us deserve the love of God. Romans 3 and verse 10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Because we've all sinned and broken the law of God, his love is always undeserved. And yet this verse declares God so loved the world. You know, when Jesus lived on this planet, he went about doing good. One of the accusations that was frequently made about Jesus was that he ate with publicans and sinners, not just sinners. Publicans and sinners. Why a special group of sinners? Because in every culture and every place there's always a special group of sinners, the bottom of the bottom. And Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. The publican you realize was a Roman tax collector who'd sold his soul for profit who'd sold out his nation, who robbed from the widows and the poor and the fatherless. The publican lined his his pockets by living off the taxes that he extracted from his people. He put wealth above loyalty to his people. The publicans were especially hated by the Jews. They were dirty, rotten, low-down scum. Jesus sat with them and ate. He ate with the lowest of the low. Why? Because he wants us to understand that the object of God's love is always undeserving. Listen, God loves little boys who are bullies. God loves little girls who are gossips and make others cry. God loves alcoholics like my Uncle Bill. I'm so glad that somebody told my Uncle Bill that and he trusted Christ as Saviour. God loves murderers like my friend Ed who came out of jail to witness to others God's grace, the fact that he trusted Christ as Savior and his sins had been forgiven. God loves the child abusers like my friend Will who abused even against his own family before he came to know the knowledge of the love of God and sought God's forgiveness. When you identify somebody as a monster, you better identify that somebody as somebody that God loves. God loves the undeserving because God loves you and God loves me. 25 words that can change our eternity. God help us to not cloister ourselves with the high and the mighty and the holy and forget that God so loves the world. Let's add seven more words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now we're considering the offering of love, the offering of love. We often hear God only had one son, and let me just make it clear, Adam was not that son. Adam was God's creation. But the Bible tells us that the birth of Jesus was on this wise, when Mary was told that the Holy Ghost would come upon her. She was also told that that one which would be born of her would be called The Son of God. Jesus alone is the Son of God. He stepped out of eternity where he had dwelt alongside the Father, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He stepped out of eternity to be born of a virgin. The Eternal One would wear the body of humanity, still fully God and fully man, to live a completely sinless life for one purpose to offer that sinless life, to offer Himself upon an old rugged cross to die for our sins. Isaiah 53 says in verse 6 that God has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. The offering of love required tremendous suffering. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. God's justice requires that sin would be punished. And Hebrews 2 says that He, Christ, tasted death for every man. The object, the world, the offering Himself. It required suffering, and it was a substitutionary offering. Romans 4 says in verse 25, He was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification that Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. When I was a child in Sunday school, I'm sure I heard a half a dozen times a story that's still told by Sunday school teachers who love their students. I always loved to hear the story of the Prairie Schoolhouse where the teacher stood before the students and said to the students, now we have to have some rules for our class. So what things should be wrong? And someone said, it would be wrong to lie. Yes, it would be wrong to lie. It would be wrong to steal. Yes, it would be wrong to steal. It would be wrong to to hit somebody. And she wrote down the rules for the class. And then the suggestion was made. Now, what will be the penalty for these rules, these infractions, if someone breaks them? Someone suggested, well, if if somebody lies, that ought to be, you know, two whacks back in the day when such things were done, even in public schools. And if somebody steals, that ought to be five whacks. And so they, they listed the penalties for the crimes. And whether this story be true or not, it always made me get choked up when I heard it. Because as the story goes, a day came when someone looked for their lunch and the lunch was gone. And they looked around and they discovered that a skinny little kid in the class had stolen the lunch. And so the little child who had stolen the lunch was brought before the whole class and asked, why did you steal that lunch? And everybody looked at him and knew why he stole that lunch. He was so skinny. And he said, I was hungry. The teacher looked at the penalty and marked the penalty to the crime and said, Stealing, it's five lashes. And so the child was instructed to take off his shirt and be prepared for the punishment. And as he did so, he stood before the class, emaciated and thin, weak. Somebody in the class stood up, in fact, a big boy who'd often been a bully, but he had sympathy that day. And he said, Teacher, it says five lashes, but it doesn't say who has to pay the five lashes. I'd like to step in. Will you give me the five lashes for that little boy who stole the lunch? And as the story goes, the bigger boy stepped in and received the penalty that the little boy could never have endured. And of course, the conclusion to the story is so true. And when Jesus stepped in, he took our penalty. The just for the unjust. You see, God's justice is real Ezekiel says in chapter 18 and verse 4: The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God can't adjust his standard of justice and still be God. God is holy, and he's holy and willing to allow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die upon the cross for our sins. The songwriter said: Bearing shame and scoffing, rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 25 words. Let's look at eight more. Let's consider these words that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Here we discover what I'd like to call the option of love. You see, God's love isn't forced upon you. <laughs> no. God's love is received by all those who will receive Jesus as Savior. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, James chapter 2 and verse 9 says that the devils believe and they tremble. The devils believe that Jesus is God. The devils believe that Jesus lived without sin. The devils believe that Jesus died on the cross. And the devils even believe that Jesus rose again. And they tremble. Their emotions are burdened by what they believe. But they receive no spiritual benefit. You see, love that's been given must be received, that whoever believes in him. It's interesting as you look at the Gospel of John, you discover that this love that's being believed in here is not simply a a mental ascent, it's not simply an emotional stirring. No, John 1 and verse 12 helps us to understand that the word believe and the word receive, listen, that those two words are used synonymously in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. John 3 and verse 16 explains, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believing and receiving becomes synonymous in the gospel of God. Those who believe will receive, and those who receive will believe. Why? Because salvation is a gift that God wants to give you. It's your option will you receive. Jesus shed his precious blood to fully purchase your forgiveness of sin. Now will you believe and will you receive? It's a famous story told of George Wilson who was of rob, convicted rather of robbing the U.S. mail way back in the 1800s. He was sentenced to death because he threatened the life of a U.S. Postal worker, but a friend of his actually contacted President Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson wrote a pardon for George Wilson. And when George Wilson heard that the pardon had been written, he was in his jail cell and he said, I refuse it. (laughs) I don't want to be pardoned. I want to pay for what I did. His case went to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. In 1833, the Supreme Court said this a pardon is a deed to the validity of which is delivered is essential. The validity of which delivery, rather, is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it's tendered or offered. And if it's rejected, we've discovered no power in this court to have it forced upon him. In other words, if he wouldn't receive the pardon, he wouldn't be pardoned. Now, Smith's Magazine reported that Wilson was hanged. The National Gazette of Philadelphia said something different, and I don't know which happened. The National Gazette of Philadelphia said, no, he wasn't hanged. He lived for 10 more years and was actually pardoned again by Martin Van Buren and received the pardon the second time. I don't know which it was, but I know this. The Supreme Court said something that the Bible says as well. A pardon is available, but a pardon has no power if you don't receive it. A pardon is available for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, That whoever believeth and to believe means to receive and if you receive you'll have everlasting life you see jesus paid the pardon that whosoever will receive and believe can have everlasting life the bible says as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of god have you received jesus christ as your personal savior i want you to notice just the final phrase of this passage As we meditate on the final phrase of John 3 and verse 16, something wonderful is discovered. The Bible says, He will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the operation of love. Our text begins with God. Our text ends with everlasting life. It's a wonderful text. This text tells us two things about God and two things about men. It tells us that God loved the world and God gave His Son. It tells us that those who believe will not perish and that they will have everlasting life. Two wonderful promises that are in this passage. Those who believe shall not perish. Those who believe shall have everlasting life. And there's a little conjunction, the word but, and I don't want to become confusing, but there's something wonderful to discover here. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. With that little conjunction, God divides the saved from the lost God divides those who are heading to heaven from those who are heading to hell. God divides those who are dead in their trespasses and sin from those who are ever alive in Christ. When Jesus spoke these words, everlasting life, he's not just talking about eternal existence. Listen, eternal existence is assured to all whether or not they receive Christ. Jesus speaks of the everlasting fire into which the damned will everlastingly go. Everlasting life is the assurance of God's word whether you receive Christ or not. That's not what he's speaking of here. He's not saying only those who receive him will live somewhere forever. Everyone's going to live somewhere forever. Listen, when Jesus says you'll have everlasting life, he's not speaking of a promise of entering into heaven. You with me? Whoever believeth in him will not perish but have heaven. No, he's not speaking of heaven. He's speaking of everlasting life. Heaven is a real place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's not just a condition. It's not just an idea. It's a place. But he's not speaking of a promise of entering into heaven. What then is he speaking about when he says, whoever believes in him, listen, will have everlasting life? Oh, he's sharing something wonderful. For after all, He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the what? He is the life. And in John 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and what? I am the life. And in Colossians 3 and verse 4, the Bible says, Christ is, to the believer, Christ is your life. To have life, you have to have Christ. First John 5 says it this way in verse 11, God hath given to us eternal life. That's right now. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. What's John 3.16 saying? He that believeth in him should not perish, but live somewhere forever? No. He that believeth in him should not perish, but go to heaven? No. No. He's saying, he that believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, without Jesus Christ, you have ordinary life. It's eternal. You'll live somewhere forever. And without Jesus Christ, that somewhere forever is hell. Because the Bible says, we are all born dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But the Apostle Paul says something wonderful in Galatians 2 and verse 20. And it ought to be the testimony of every believer who's in this room this morning The Apostle Paul says, Christ liveth in me. When you're born again, you have life. From the moment that you trust Christ as Savior given, life, everlasting life, Christ comes to live within you. All of us have a heart that's beating this morning, some more rapidly than others. I can tell by the fluttering of your eyelids. But that heart that's beating in me, I can say that that heart that's beating in me touches every part of me. I can feel it in my neck. I can feel it in my fingers. I can feel it in my wrist. I can even feel it way down on my ankle. I can say that my heart lives in me. When you come to know Christ as Savior, Christ comes to live in you, every part of you. And what a difference it makes. Suddenly, your affections change. Suddenly, the temptations that once lured you into sin, you have the power to resist. Suddenly, the hopelessness is gone, and there's a hope in heaven. And you say, how did that happen? You have. It doesn't say will have. It says, whoever will believe in him shall not perish, but it's a present promise. You will have everlasting life. Do you have that everlasting life? Is Christ living in you? When a young man falls in love and today prepares for that wonderful day of engagement, buys the ring, hires the photographer, sets up the situation, gets on his knee, opens the diamond, and says, will you marry me? It's all photographed today in great detail, you know. The best can even get an audio recording of what happens Imagine when that box is opened, will you marry me? And the girl looks at it and says, no. Ouch. We all cringe and we say, that's a tragedy. But when it's opened, will you marry me? And he says, or she says, yes. All the world rejoices. Listen, folks, right now God has opened an offer to you. If you'll believe in Jesus, if you receive him, you'll have everlasting life. To reject is a tragedy. To accept and all eternity rejoices. What will you do with Jesus? Can you say it still with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindie.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.